I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Brought to you by Sherm, a better workplace, a better world. I'm Stacey Marie Ishmael, Managing Editor of Crypto for Bloomberg News. And this is Bloomberg Crypto, a daily Bloomberg iHeart podcast. It's Friday, June 24th. Before the Russian invasion of Ukraine in February, the Ukrainian government and the crypto community did not quite see eye to eye. There was skepticism, distrust, and even a few police raids on unlicensed crypto exchanges. But since the war broke out, there's been a shift. Digital asset leaders in Ukraine are now hailed, by some, as heroes because of their work with the Ukrainian government to finance the war effort. And they're scoring some big successes along the way. Ukraine's Deputy Minister for Digital Transformation has said that crypto donations enable the army to buy military equipment and medicine. Today, I'm joined by Bloomberg reporter Alistair Mosh to talk through his reporting on how Ukraine has been using crypto during the war to support its armies and its population. Alistair, thank you so much for being our guest today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. We are going to talk about the war in Ukraine from a crypto angle, which for folks who haven't been following along closely might seem like a little bit of a strange way to tackle this topic. So I'd love for you to set the stage about what, as it relates to Ukraine and crypto, has been interesting, but also been a sometimes controversial place for the industry and how that has changed in light of the war with Russia. Well, so the situation in Ukraine when it comes to crypto is in some, in many ways, not dissimilar to um, the experiences that you've had in many other countries in that the authorities have been suspicious, to say the least, of, of crypto. But what's been really amazing to witness, um, I mean, obviously, this is in some ways a smaller story of the, the broader struggle that Ukraine has been through and the incredible journey that the Ukrainian people have, have been on these last months. But one, one sort of yeah, small chapter of that is how the attitudes towards crypto have changed fundamentally because a couple of years ago, actually Ukrainian authorities viewed crypto with deep skepticism and there were frequent raids of um, crypto exchanges and anyone involved in crypto activity you know, from both the special services and other government bodies. It was viewed as, you know, sort of the classic idea of this is just drug money and this is money for illicit purposes and there's no good use for this technology or this that type of asset but um actually the, the the war experience has totally transformed that it's been kind of miraculous to see that, that actually the war effort is being financed in part by crypto and crypto is playing a critical role in enabling the government to source military equipment humanitarian aid all kinds of, sort of necessities that it needs Despite the relentless onslaught of Russian forces, Ukraine's vital tech sector is still operating for clients around the world. While Ukraine's own tech leaders are helping support the war effort and working around the clock to keep their own employees safe, 
Right now, so you're holding up your phone. I mean, one of the things that really struck me when we were doing reporting on the situation with crypto in Ukraine after the Russia invasion was how many developers, protocols, you know, the kinds of bits of crypto infrastructure that people have come to rely on are maintained either out of the Ukraine or by Ukrainian devs. And, you know, given that environment, were you more or less surprised that crypto then emerged as this lifeline during the war? You're definitely right that there was a very vibrant local crypto scene in in that there were yeah many developers locally there were protocols and based people working on various projects in Ukraine and actually um Michael Chibanyan who's uh, head of the Kuna crypto exchange that the biggest exchange in in um in Ukraine who I'm sure we'll, we'll be talking about in a moment he called the crypto scene wild back in the day and it was both wild one because you had the sort of the, the government suspicion and crackdown of which I've just spoken but also because you kind of had a a real vibrant local scene where you had many people working on different projects and there was a real um buzz about it he talked about meetups where there would be hundreds of people you know into the thousands gathering on a weekly basis that's very different to any experience that i've had in 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 london so there was this sort of acceptance of crypto both in terms of having plenty of ukrainians working in the industry but also there are statistics showing that ukraine is either the first or certainly in the top three in terms of countries globally that use crypto so there's kind of this uh, underlying um you know, acceptance among the people it was just sort of at the government level that there was a suspicion and now that's totally transformed so i guess it's sort of an aligning of government and state with the people and you mentioned michael jobanian who's really been instrumental in making that alignment happen right so he he's sort of apocryphally known as the father of the crypto scene in ukraine you interviewed him at the very beginning of the war by voice memo <laughs> back and forth to hear more about the developments at the time and one of the big things that was happening you know in the in the days immediately following Russia's invasion of the country was the crypto community rallied around philanthropy in a way that was I, w- I don't want to say unprecedented but at least remarkable in that they were donating millions and millions and millions of dollars worth of crypto to the Ukrainian government and what was really unusual was that they were doing that to the Ukrainian government's own wallets what was Chobanian's role in making this happen right well he he is actually a really fascinating character i mean he when i said that i'd heard he was the godfather of crypto he in, in ukraine he laughed and said yes that's what they call me i was the first guy who actually started publicly speaking about the crypto the first guy who actually did you know to be honest there's a lot of stuff that i did first like the first atm first public trade first company first exchange first otc first you know a lot of first so we spoke um yeah early march so the the war had been going on just over 2 weeks at that point and th- i this was the point when it was clear that the ukrainian government was asking or essentially forcing um all all uh, military age men 18 plus men to stay in the country and fight so i assumed when i spoke to him that he would be you know somewhere in the trenches or you know were doing some kind of army job no i didn't join the army because i felt really a good army man 
Uh, I'm good with guns, but uh, only in theory. So my job is being a crypto banker for the government. So I'm in charge of uh, collecting, fundraising, um, storing crypto, exchanging crypto to crypto, exchanging crypto to fiat, opening the bank accounts for uh, for intermediaries or for the government so we can uh, change crypto to fiat and then wire them to our accounts and without those accounts we can buy some wherever is required by the ministry of defense and um, there's some statistics that they keep the numbers keep changing um, but the the government puts them out on twitter from time to time the, the ukrainian government and they say that something like i think it's five thousand. it's probably more than that now um bulletproof vests and then there are pictures of um them having uh, there are pictures there's the deputy minister of digital transformation which is a wonderful title and he puts on his twitter feed if you ever am inclined to look um pictures of armored vehicles and weapons and bulletproof vests and all kinds of things that have been bought with crypto mm-hmm. um so it's quite quite remarkable really We'll be right back to talk about the innovative ways crypto is helping the war effort in Ukraine. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Kuna, you know, to that point about Chabanian being the crypto banker, he has been, I remember one of the stats in March was that of the $100 million or so that the government had raised at that point, and it's way more than that at this point, you know, he was managing like 60% of that money on their behalf to buy that military equipment and, and other supplies that you're describing. So it seemed like it's a pretty important and probably very complicated role right now. For sure. And also in some ways, a little bit, um, 
you know, probably rubs, goes against the grain a bit of what of his own background, you know, to be working for the state is kind of a funny thing for a crypto guy to do. But it's, I guess, all part of the sort of patriotic national effort to beat the Russians and to uh, supply what the people need. So, yeah, I'm not sure he would have ever imagined that he would be working for the government, but that's that's where he finds himself. And you're right, it is quite an important, um, quite an important role. The battle for Donbass remains Russia's strategic focus, and territorial gains have been slow in the face of stiff Ukrainian resistance. Well, I'm glad you raised that point about the tension between, you know, the the anti-government libertarian roots of, of a lot of crypto and a lot of people in the scene, and the fact that so many people rallied to give money, not just to a government, but to a military. And, you know, It's certainly been an interesting and challenging time for, I suppose you could call them the crypto purists, who have, you know, been for years saying the point of this, of this, these tokens, the point of this ecosystem is to avoid government interference of any kind. Um, And to have, you know, a bunch of folks who were very influential in the industry, you had the heads of exchanges, you had the inventor of Ethereum, all saying, hey, this is a good cause and we should rally around that was was really quite remarkable indeed. I think it exposes a lot of kind of the tensions and, and contradictions within crypto. I mean, here's a kind of a proof of concept that Bitcoin and kind of crypto in, in the broader sense has a social utility. Crypto is providing almost like a humanitarian service here. Well, in some ways, it's not surprising, but you're right. It does it does kind of go against the grain of the ethos. Yeah, the kind of anti-libertarian stuff. Indeed. And to the point about the G in in, in ESG, you know, the, the idea of corporate government governance, it certainly raised a lot of interesting issues around sanctions and sanctions evasions, because one of the thing that Ukraine was also calling for was for exchanges to ban not just people who are on the Russian sanctions list, but any Russian citizens at all. And even the exchanges that had been very supportive of, you know, Ukraine's crypto efforts came out and said, no, we're not going to do that. <laughs> if somebody's on a sanctions list, we will absolutely comply with that sanctions list. We will make sure that we're not allowing them to use our services in any way, but we're not going to ban everyone with a Russian passport from using these services. Yeah, you're right. It is really interesting. Like the And also, what should be the response to, to the state? Um, what should be the response to um, regulators and so on? That is still... You know, an open question. I mean, like the stories about Binance, for example, you know, just shows you that uh, we're in a world of greater sort of regulatory and government interest and oversight of the crypto markets. So I guess you've got to be careful how you, well, crypto businesses have to be more and more careful. Absolutely. What line they tread here. Yeah. And Binance is in the news because of a blockbuster Reuters report that they had been responsible for helping to launder a couple of billion dollars worth of crypto that was associated with a North Korean hacking group known as Lazarus, which they have, of course, scrupulously denied, um, but certainly something that is going to get, to your, to your point, even more governmental scrutiny and quite likely regulation in the coming weeks and months. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Was this whole idea about how and going back to my point about crypto being sort of a, providing a social good here, is that, you know, crypto, I think the Ukrainian situation, the, the war has proved that Bitcoin and crypto can provide great utility, great social benefit, but also can be used for to finance terrible things too. So the, the, the sort of 
the argument about it's all just drug money and uh, terrorist financing, well, maybe, but there's also this side too. This is a very, in my mind, Chibanin in Ukraine, this is a very positive story for crypto and Bitcoin that it's helping people in desperate needs to fight against an oppressor. And, you know, that's a wonderful story to tell. Well, that is a very positive note on which to end. So thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. You can find more of his reporting on the Bloomberg Terminal on Bloomberg.com and find him on Twitter at Alistair J. Marsh. On the next episode of Bloomberg Crypto, California's Silicon Valley is both a place and a philosophy, often hailed as the place for U.S. tech startups to get their start. VCs, or venture capitalists, are an integral part of this mythology. These are the people who provide the private capital, billions of dollars worth, so these startups can chase the next big thing. Despite the volatile crypto market, some of those VCs are still betting big on the potential of the blockchain. For the latest on this, we'll talk to Bloomberg reporter Hannah Miller about how crypto is influencing VC and vice versa. I'm Stacey Marie Ishmael, and this is Bloomberg Crypto, a daily podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartRadio. For more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Email your questions, comments, or suggestions for the show to crypto at Bloomberg.net. And find us on Twitter. We're at Crypto. The supervising producer and editor of this episode is Vicky Vergalina. Our producer is Mohamed Farouk. Desta Wanderad is our engineer. Original music by Leo Sidron. Bloomberg's head of podcasts is Francesca Levy. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Brought to you by Sherm, a better workplace, a better world.